If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from a few amazing fundraisers about what they value most as members of Tammy Zonker's Fundraising Transformers community. I have had the honor of learning and growing from Tammy. She has really helped us understand how to communicate better with our donors, how to make sure that our mission is at the front line of their decision making. And she has just been an absolute joy to learn from. That's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, talking about how being a growth member is helping her communicate better with her donors. When you join Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member, you get live training and coaching with Tammy twice each month. You can get your burning questions answered during her live Ask Me Anything sessions. You get to join in Tammy's live weekly hot topic discussions. You can engage with other fundraising pros like you in her private and safe online community. And you get 24-7 access to her growing library of on-demand fundraising training videos and tools. Here's Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how being a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community is helping her grow her capacity, her skills, and her confidence as a fundraiser. It's been so helpful for me to grow my capacity and my skills. I feel more confident uh, knowing that I have Tammy and the Fundraising Transformers group for support. I've reached out to Tammy and the group on several occasions, whether it be just some wording for an email to say, hey, can somebody give me just a little bit of feedback on this? I'd love your thoughts before I send this out for an initiative. We'll hear more later in the show about why Jenna values having access to Tammy's members-only, on-demand training library. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. Today, we have the remarkable Harvey McKinnon joining us. Harvey is president of Harvey McKinnon & Associates, a full-service fundraising agency based in Vancouver, working with nonprofit organizations everywhere to help raise more money, improve donor retention, and increase long-term donor value. Harvey has a real passion for activism, fundraising, and public speaking. He has keynoted conferences from Australia to Norway and is an award-winning documentary film producer. He's a prolific author. Uh, He's written The Power of Giving, How Giving Giving Back Enriches Us All, which was the very first book I ever read of yours, Harvey, uh, in an airport when a flight was canceled. Uh, The next book that uh, I want to share is Hidden Gold, How Monthly Giving Will Build Donor Loyalty, Boost Your Organization's Income, 
and increase financial stability. And Harvey wrote that book 23 years ago, long before monthly giving was really on most of our radar. He wrote the 11 questions every donor asks and the answers every donor craves, which we're going to unpack a little bit today. And most recently, uh, published in March of 2020, right when the pandemic hit, really, he wrote How to Create Lifelong Donors Through Monthly Giving. And it's a really brilliant guide to creating and implementing a monthly giving program, the strategies, the segmentations, the logic. um, And it also has an amazing section on how to sell the idea of investing in monthly giving to your executive leadership team and your board. So, gosh, Harvey, what what do you do in your spare time? I think I read books. uh, (laughs) (laughs) A lot of them. And a lot of them, no doubt. All right. So, Harvey, welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, I want to start by talking about your classic book, The 11 Questions Every Donor Asks, The Answers That All Donors Crave. Now, I have seen far too often that fundraisers tend to focus primarily on how to uh, get their brand pitch right or how to tell the right story or how to ask for the right amount. And while those things are really important and necessary, sometimes too often we really neglect to understand our donors and their concerns, their points of view and perspectives, and we neglect their unspoken questions. That's why I've always loved this book. And while it was first published in 2013, it really remains as true and relevant now as it was then. Um, Harvey, you wrote in the introduction, to succeed at fundraising, it's essential to know the questions that are on your donor's mind. And the better you are at answering those questions, the more money you're certain to raise. So tell us a little bit about your inspiration for writing this book and and the process. Sure. Well, that sounds like a great line out of the book. I should reread it. Um, I guess somewhere along the line, I was talking to a publisher at Emerson Church, uh, Jerry, who has published a lot of the best fundraising books. And we were bantering about different things. And I think he actually suggested this. And I thought, great idea, because I've always felt that questions are key to success in life in all aspects. And so I spent... uh, probably two months, like listing every possible question I could think of, reached out to a bunch of friends, said, what questions do you think are important? And then I kind of cut out the duplicates because so many of them were similar, but I had over 200 questions and I narrowed it down to 11. I was trying to get it to 10, but I couldn't. So I felt like there really were 11 questions. And um, so then I just essentially started collecting stories because I think great fundraising great education is storytelling based and so would just slot the stories into the file and then just uh spent maybe you know working full-time but spending spare time writing it over about a year year and a half yeah incredible the subtitle of the book says uh quote how you can inspire someone to give generously end quote and i think sometimes our profession gets described with phrases like we're begging for money or hitting people up or guilting people into giving. And I think that those phrases obviously are the complete opposite of inspiring someone to give. What have you seen in your career, both as a frontline fundraiser and as president of Harvey McKinnon and Associates around how to inspire people to give? 
Well, our friend, mutual friend, Ken Burnett, the godfather, as you call him, of fundraising. I think great godfather is more appropriate. Um, but he, he had a great line uh, many years ago, which was, we're not in any business other than the inspiration business. And I think that's true. Because if you've ever been approached by anybody who's trying to uh, start something or raise money for a cause, if they are lifeless and lack, you know, they just don't have energy, you're not going to buy into it. Where I've seen people who are just so passionate about cause, that's, it's contagious. It's inspiring. So I've always found that that makes a difference. People want to be inspired. Our lives, for most people, are hard. Um, you know, even if we're wealthy Westerners, there's lots of trauma and lots of sadness and you watch the news and it's not all that great. So when you can touch people's heart by giving them some inspiration, they want to be part of that. So when you save, uh, you know, an area of rainforest or old growth forest, that's going to be around for future generations, uh, you know, hundreds of years into the future and protect all the animals in there. That's inspirational. And it's the same thing you find a a cure for a rare cancer or a rare trait disease. Uh, and you know, that's going to affect thousands of people around the world, you know, and you're part of that. That's pretty inspiring as well. Yeah. And I think that your book and really, as long as I've known you, your philosophy is kind of at that intersection of great storytelling and genuinely being curious and asking questions. And from my view, that's really one of your um, brilliant traits is having donors, not only us being curious about them and their passions and their values and what, what they might want to support, how they might want to change the world or make a difference, but also piquing their curiosity about our work, right? And, and developing that passion and that inspiration. And part of the way that we do that is by removing barriers, right? As humans, we're kind of hardwired for a negative bias. And I feel like your 11 questions help remove the barriers by us proactively addressing the questions. So how about we just kind of jump into the questions? Sure. Yeah. So well, the- And I like the way you phrase that because when I'm doing presentations on this or teaching, I always talk about removing the barriers because... If you can answer all these questions in advance or some of them in advance and either material you send them on their website, everyone that's removed is removed, potentially removing a barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you make a great point, too. We need to look at how to remove those barriers in every communication channel, whether that's yeah. face-to-face, via the website, print materials, video. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So... The first question, let's kind of walk through the questions and I'll ask you to speak to each question and share a little bit about why you feel that that's important and how you narrowed it from over 200 questions down to these 11. I mean, I I did not realize that. So the first question is, why me? Why are you coming to me as a potential supporter? Well, I think the reason that's in there is because I think uh, everybody is me focused um, they want to think, well, either what's in it for me or how does this affect me or, well, do they care about me at all? And so there's various things packaged into there. But I think if you um, have a focus on the donor or the prospect and what they care about or should care about or don't even know that they care about, but you touch something in their heart, they're more likely going to want to participate in giving. And the reality for most 
donations is they're not going to be face-to-face donations. Um, you know, even if it's a special event, which is kind of face-to-face potentially, but you're somebody's at the front talking to a thousand people and they pull out their checkbooks or visas and give. But the vast majority of gifts are either online or through the mail or by the phone or by automatic giving through, um, you know, credit cards or pre-authorized checking. So uh, I felt like these questions and this one is certainly something that if you get a direct mail letter or an email from somebody, think why are they sending me is kind of a gut instinct. And so if you can address that question and talk about their what their interests are, whether it's strengthening the community when you give money to help people who are homeless get off drugs and uh, you know get jobs in the community, it reduces tax bills and reduces break-ins, and in addition to the fact that it helps save lives. So that's why why me is there. Yeah, it's brilliant. You also kind of speak to the fact that um, you know your past giving shows that you care about this issue. You know, because, yeah, and I, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. I was going to say that. So I was initially talking about prospects, but clearly when you're talking to your current donors or people who have given in the past who might be lapsed, is you do refer to, in fact, you've given to demonstrate that you care about your community or you've already helped people like this, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, second question, why are you asking me? Right. So who are you, whether it's the fundraiser, the person signing the letter, the person sending the appeal, why are they the ones or why are you fundraiser asking me? Right. So they want to, I think, know who you are as an individual, especially if it's a more personal thing or your friend, a peer, somebody they respect. If you're uh, the CEO in a corporate, smaller corporation and you're asking your employees to give to the United Way then obviously there's some other, you know, you're more likely to give to them than somebody on the shop floor who you've never heard of and you have no relation with. So the you in this makes a difference. If it's somebody who's well-respected, it makes a difference. So that's why when we're sending a letter, we do a lot of hospital fundraising. So we'll frequently send letters from doctors, occasionally nurses, because people love nurses as they should. And occasionally we'll send uh, letters from frequently, especially kids' hospitals, from the parents saying, my child came into this hospital, they saved their life. So that's why they are writing to them. Uh, that's, you know, we'll do videos with them as well. But um, they have a story to tell, and that makes it legitimate for them to be asking for money. Because if you can minimize the self-interest, uh, then you can maximize the amount of gifts. And they don't want people to think, well, this is a staff person, they're getting paid. So this is why they're saying these things. So it's finding that person often in correspondence, and it can be email as well, or in video, that uh, has very little self-interest in doing this, other than they've been moved emotionally, and they're trustworthy. And Yeah, the trustworthiness. Trust is all like all through all these 11 questions. Absolutely. The credibility, the respectability. And I think it really... Uh, points to the fact that it's important to really, again, look through the donor's eyes and determine who is the best person to make this ask, whether it's in a multi-channel campaign or face-to-face in a major gifts program. And I think that that really is a nod to the power of peer-to-peer fundraising as well. Yeah. We always try to, and like the great thing about any kind of direct marketing, digital or print, 
is that you can test all these things. But in every decent sized file, uh, like we've got 100,000 donors, some people will respond to person A and other people will respond to person B, depending on now, this person is exactly like me. I'm going to, in different ways, I will give to them, but I won't give to the other one. So that's it. You know, you can test these things on a major scale. And if you've got a large enough fundraising shop, university or hospital, you may be able to test these things uh, with person to person fundraising. Although that gets complicated for many social and political reasons, but um, mm -hmm. I'll just leave that one there. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about A-B testing with a donor file, say in a multi-channel, direct mail, email kind of um, campaign effort. Well, Covenant House in BC is one of our clients. So they did a test a number of years ago where they had two ads that kind of ran on Facebook and digital formats. And the image was the same. The copy was exactly the same. The headline was the same. The ask was the same. Every word in it, the image was the same, except for where it says donate the button. There was a different color. And one was kind of orangey and the other was red. And red got 100% more click-throughs and 50% more donations. So when you do tests like this, and it's way easier to do in digital because the time is so short to find out, then you can roll out what works. We've done bazillions of other tests, but another related test to Covenant House is a number of years ago, they got 8,000 new direct mail donors. They called half them, volunteers called them to thank them. And the other 4,000 didn't get that call immediately after their gift. The people who gave, uh, who got the call, just thanking them and not asking for a donation, gave hundreds of thousands more money in the next year. And Roger Craver, great fundraising genius has a bunch of these similar studies. So the important, and there are some, I've seen an article in Chronicle of Philanthropy, some academic studies saying, well, the thank yous don't work. They did the thank yous like five months after the gift. Um, so it's the immediacy of making that thank you, whether it's a card uh, or phone call, makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And if you pull back the curtain further on that Chronicle of Philanthropy article saying that thank you calls don't work. Um, yeah. They were paid thank you callers. Yeah. Yeah, there's, it's like a stake through my heart. <laughs> I know. There's so many things about that, that. But a lot of people just read that and think, oh, well, it's not worth spending the money. And it's, that's wrong. People love being thanked. And, and it's hard to thank them often enough. Yeah. Agreed. All right. The third question. Do I respect you? So the point being that most likely you would give money to someone that you trust, right? So right. Say yeah. a little bit more and about I think that. that. So Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, great book, has a thing on trust. And uh, the takeaway is that trust is earned. So my gut instinct is always to basically trust pretty much everybody and give them the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes I've been burned. Um, you know, the odd time burned badly, but I feel it's a better way to go through life. And I've been lucky that Almost all the experiences have been great. But say you have a new employee uh, and you think they're a great person. The thing is they have to demonstrate that they can, in fact, do the job and do the job well. And as they prove that over and over again, then you give them more responsibilities. And eventually, as I feel like I've done with every person I work with, they're so great that I let them make decisions. And they're almost always great decisions and frequently better decisions than I would make. 
but they earn the trust over time. And I think it's the same thing with people who are fundraisers. When you first meet, say, a major donor, they're not going to give you $10 million. But if you build a relationship and they think, okay, this is a person of integrity, they really know what they're talking about, they're as passionate about this cause as I am, they start investing in you as well as the organization. So I think trust is absolutely key and uh, and you build trust through being uh, having integrity. Yeah. And, you know, demonstrating and listening to them as well. That builds trust because they think this is a person who hears what I'm saying. Yeah. They care about me beyond just the gift yeah. I may potentially give or what I have given. Yeah. You know, I think one of the challenges we face in our sector around building trust is the fact that we have such a high rate of turnover in our organizations. I think the most recent data says the average tenure is 16 months. And Harvey, you probably heard or read, just as I did, in Penelope Burke's talks and in her donor-centered leadership book, that it takes on average about two years for a major donor to trust us enough to give their most generous gift. So when you... (laughs) Calculate like 16, even 18 months. Like we just missed that most generous gift by a hair. Yeah, I know. It's a really bad combination. I will say, because I think it's not quite as bad in Canada with the turnover. Um, But I think it's a real serious problem. And some of the people who are coming into the profession have a background maybe in marketing or sales or in the corporate office and they couldn't get any higher. So they come into the nonprofit sector. And so they don't actually have the skills they need even to do the job because it takes a while to learn these skills. So it's, um, there's a chronic shortage of really great fundraisers, as we all know. And even when we're doing the last person we were looking for as an account manager position in all of Canada, they could work anywhere. Two qualified candidates, we felt, and the whole country. Luckily, we hired one of them, and she's fantastic. But that's the, you know, if you're a nonprofit, it's probably even harder. And so I think, you know, there's lots of really good stuff written on how to keep people. And, you know, if you've got a toxic workplace, people are going to be recycling out. And, you know, and here's one tip for your audience. When a, uh, an organization uh, had a fundraiser, kind of a disaster. They're paying 70 odd thousand dollars a year, couldn't raise any money. Um, and they asked me if I had any tips on who could be hired. And I analyzed the program, the million dollars a year. I said, you don't actually need a full-time person. You could find some, here's the ideal person to look for. Somebody that doesn't want to work full-time, that has a bunch of experience, that wants a lifestyle that they're comfortable with and is good at fundraising. And they found this person uh, <laughs> who I recommended afterwards because my wife, I was telling her this, I said, well, I'd be great at that. And now she's working for them, makes about $18,000 a year and is raising them hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I expect there's a lot of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who would love to have that opportunity to work for a nonprofit that they care about, but they don't need to be paid full time because a lot of the smaller organizations, you don't need this. So this worked out for everybody. And I think that in this uh, pandemic, pseudo post-pandemic maybe world, rethinking what positions look like could be a key differentiator between someone leaving or staying. 
So totally, I think, and yeah, there's lots of people who have realized that lifestyle is more important than the job because we just see that. And I was on a call this morning where one of our friends in the nonprofit sector was told by her nonprofit they want her back in the office, and she said, "I'm quitting." Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to go back. Said, well, no, you. She doesn't want to go back, and now they're trying to beg her to go back, but she's just taking another job. It was too late for them. So I think the flexibility is critically important. And we have people all across the country working with us at the agency and for two years. And it's been great. It's been really um, kind of a surprise. We've had different people in three offices. But this has been a really great experience. And I think for people doing fundraising, you can um, almost always be anywhere. And still, whether you're doing video or mail or telephone, doesn't matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. The fourth question, uh, how much do you want? Right? That's on every donor's mind as we engage them. They see the ask is coming. Yeah. How much do you want? So you write that donors typically don't want to give too much or too little. So this is the most difficult question because there's no right answer to this. It's art and science. And the more experience a fundraiser has, the better off they will be coming close to what this is. So I think the thing is to slightly aim high. You might be surprised. So in the book, I tell the story about this friend, Lynn uh, Grant, who uh, was working for Nature Conservancy. And she went into an office uh, with her CEO and they're thinking, well, we're going to ask for a quarter of a million dollars. Let's be brave and ask for half a million dollars. They go in. The person said almost instantly, well, sure, no problem. I could have given you much more money if you needed it. So they didn't leave ecstatic. They got double what they thought for months they would get. They were disappointed because they feel like they left half a million dollars on the table. So I cannot give people, I think, the kind of tips they need because you have to evaluate every single situation. But I'd say, you know, probably aim high is a better thing. The better research you do, know, will help. I was doing an audit for environmental organ, a DC-based environmental group 20 years ago, but a million dollars a year. Somebody gave them $75,000 a year. They thought this person loves us, our best donor. And I did research on this person and he gave 4 million over here and down a chair for 10 million. This was kind of chump changes like you and me giving a hundred bucks. Yeah, we kind of like them, but we're not deeply committed. And yet this was seven and a half percent of their budget and they really counted on it every year. So I think doing research is absolutely critically important to know people's giving capacity, talking to in a, in a kind of a nice way without um, trying to invade the privacy with their friends is a good idea. Uh, but in capital campaigns, you said like, who else could help and what do you think the market would be like? So there's all sorts of good books and research on how to do this better. But again, I think it, it really comes down to who knows. Who knows? You and might have a better, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the more research we can do ahead of time, like what else do they support and at what level, mm-hmm. uh, is incredibly important. But also testing, not testing gift amounts per se, but testing impact. So in the cultivation process with a major donor, identifying like, okay, would we, this program would be able to do X, impact X. Yeah. And that would be about X amount of money. 
per mm-hmm. childhood center, uh, neighborhood center, or per high school turnaround, or you know, per clinician based in these communities. And we have 13 of these communities. So we begin talking about the, the impact, the investment it takes to, you know, for item A, and then talk about the greater need and see how they respond. I, literally, when we were cultivating a $27.1 million gift from General Motors, while they were in bankruptcy in the city of Detroit, uh, we were talking about at the United Way these these high school turnarounds where we were going to really take graduation rates from less than 40% to 80% or greater and how we had these small pockets of pilots that were being successful. And point blank, the General Motors North American president said, well, what would it cost to turn around five schools? It's like, okay, ding, ding. Like that's kind of the ballpark that they're thinking about, right? Um, mm-hmm. So again, just like we test in direct mail, orange button, red button, in individual donor conversations for these major gifts, I think you can test impact and talk about the investment that would be required and see how they respond. Yeah, well, this is one of my all-time favorite stories in fundraising, which is why everybody should hire you because it was like just a brilliant, brilliant story. So, and I think if you, when people know their numbers going in like you did, that's critically important because the numeracy skills among fundraisers are not what they should be. And people like specificity, so which I think is probably down the question list, but I'll just talk about it briefly now, is that when you can say uh, $1,500 will do this, that makes a difference. And here's a, like a, an aside specificity question. So uh, related to some of these things, building trust. So one of our clients, a small cancer center off in Eastern Canada, when COVID first happened, they were calling their donors uh, to see how they were feeling and how they were doing. And this is just like a courtesy call. There was no ask, but they cared about their donors. And like a community of 400,000 people, they talked to this one donor and how are you doing? And the donor said, well, pretty good. You know, we're worried about COVID, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the donor said, well, how are you doing? And the woman on the, our client said, well, we're all doing uh, great here. Nobody's got COVID, but we're a little worried about our capital campaign because we're, you know, with COVID, nobody knew really what was happening then. We think we might not make it. And he said, well, how much are you short? And they said, well, we're a million dollars short. He says, well, I can do that. This was a hundred dollar donor. Oh my <laughs> and gosh. And he went from a hundred dollars to a million because they demonstrate they care about them. So they had built the trust, um, asking questions. And back to this particular question, asking for advice of the donors that builds trust. And you also find out what they care about. And there's nothing better than asking them for advice to build up to that transformational gift. Absolutely. So good. So good. All right. Let's move on then to the fifth question. Why your organization? So there are 1.6 million nonprofits in the U.S., more than 10 million in the, in the world, according to 501c3.org. Why your organization? How do savvy nonprofits stand out in a crowd? Right. Well, one of the uh, things I talk about in this book is the book made to stick by Chip and Dan Heath. 
one of the brothers has a great new book on numbers too, which I highly recommend. And all their all their stuff is so applicable to fundraising. But in that book, they talk about success. So things have to be simple. Uh, the more of these you have, the better. Don't have to have all of them. Simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional, and storytelling based. And so when organizations do these things well, they do stand out from the crowd because most organizations do a horrible job at telling stories. They use a lot of jargon that people don't understand. That's alienating. They have people writing who aren't good copywriters or communicators, including mostly the people in marketing and communications because they just don't understand donors. They're, they talk about the organization as opposed to talking about the donors, which is where all the tests um, we and everybody else has ever done. That's how you make the most money. So concrete is your $50.27 will buy this. That gives people a dollar tag for all the inner city missions. Uh, when you say $2.97 buys a homeless man a meal, that has raised tens of billions, probably hundreds of billions of dollars because it's specific. And the reply form or the email will say, you know, $2. They don't say, give us $2.97. They'll say $29.70 will buy 10 meals and $297 will buy 100 meals. So the specificity, the concreteness is really, really uh, important. And credible is who's it coming from. So if it's a prominent member of the community, again, these apply to any kinds of fundraising. If the person who's the most respected person in the Ismaili Muslim community goes to talk to other people in the faith, they're going to give because of all sorts of reasons. And in more traditional cultures, it's even more important. So there's lots of, um, lots of combinations of things, but Made to Sick has got it, even though it's not a fundraising book, it's a fabulous collection of these. And if you do any of them well, you're more likely to stand out. If you do all of them well, you're going to be way ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll post uh, some links to the Heath books in the show right. notes too, so people can check those out. All right, question number six, will my gift make a difference? Yes, well, that's the simple one because that I've recently gone through the question. I thought, okay, there's three most important questions. And ultimately, the most important is, will my gift make a difference? Because if you can't demonstrate that it's going to have an impact, why should they give? If you can't move them emotionally, why should they give? And if you move them emotionally, they think, oh, my gift will make a difference. So, and the gift is... You know, that is uh, ultimately if you, you can have everything else going for you, but people will not give you much money if they don't think it's going to make a difference. If a friend asks me for a hundred bucks for something, I think that's not going to make a difference, but because they're a friend, I'll give them the money, but I'm not going to give them, you know, $5,000 if I don't think it's going to change a life or help save some environmentally uh, endangered area that I really care about. Sure. And the ways that we can demonstrate that their gifts will make a difference or suggest how they'll make a difference really is, are in the two ways that you've already spoken about through storytelling, yeah, like showcasing before and after how gifts, your past giving, the gifts of with you and others yeah. have made a difference in the life of Juanita and so many others. Um, and certainly then outcomes reporting which mm -hmm. I think we both are in the mindset that even if we're sharing impact in numbers, really numbers help people justify their emotional decisions to give or continue giving. So it's really totally. just a rationale. It is. Although I would say there's a small percentage of the population and there was a 
major donor study done in the States many years ago, where it was kind of like 22% of the people giving me 50,000 or more, I think the number was, cared a lot about number. I personally, you know, I write a lot of stories and I love storytelling, um, but I like numbers too. And so I'm not sure. I have a weird attitude towards numbers and I might be in the 1% where I just love numbers. So it could be there's a small population that numbers are enough if you're, say, an engineer and you don't care about emotion. <laughs> Gross generalization, I know. I have an en- engineers in the family. So was that study um, what resulted in the book, The Seven Faces of Philanthropy, and they talked about the investor persona? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. But, I, but you're totally right that for impact reports, we focus on the story and our stories, and then you can give the numbers. And John, here's a good example of this. John Wood, who created Room to Read. So he was a former Microsoft uh, bigwig burnt out, decided to go hiking in Nepal, came into this village where people are really kind to them. And he was a big book guy. And he said, do you have a library here? They showed him the library, which is a locked box that unlock it. And there's 30 books in there, including a Danielle Steele and some old chemistry book. And, and so he said, I will come back with books. And they didn't really believe him, but he came back a year later, a thousand book. And he built this global organization that's built hundreds of schools, uh, hundreds, thousands of child scholarships for girls who in most countries don't get access, equal access to education uh, and also building libraries. And I saw him speak in a room at the university out here and he raised $500,000 from a room of about 100 people with an excellent combination of telling stories, but also presenting numbers. And when he was presenting numbers, the most magic thing is he said $250 will give a girl a scholarship. $2,500 will build a small library. $21,000 will build a school. So that's the best way to use numbers by g- getting back to that, something that's concrete. Yeah, I love that. It still has, it still has a translation to impact on human lives. Yes. In that example. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Yeah. We're back with growth member Jenna Zapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how having 24-7 access to Tammy Zonker's on-demand training library is helping her become a better fundraiser. Since joining the Fundraising Transformers group, I have had the opportunity to go back and re-watch a host of trainings on such a wide variety of topics, from how to work with my team members inside my organization, to how to get my board excited and passionate about fundraising, and topics like how to reach out to a donor and how to get a meeting with a donor. Here's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, sharing that as a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community, you're never alone. How members of the community support one another by sharing resources and lessons learned to help solve tough fundraising problems. You oftentimes learn from other people across the entire country, which is really nice because it helps you understand that you're not alone in your uh, fundraising challenges. um, I was just sharing with someone the other day that it really helped me feel like I wasn't the only one experiencing these challenges, knowing that someone from New York or New Hampshire or Texas, um, people all over the U.S. with varying communities and different fundraising strategies, we're all in this together. 
At the end of the show, we'll hear why members enjoy learning from Tammy and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. Okay, uh, question number seven. Is there an urgent reason to give? And especially, I think, during these turbulent times, right? We're into year two on a pandemic. There's a horrible war between uh, Ukraine and Russia. We've got an environmental crisis. Well, actually, crisis. there's a... It's Russia invaded Ukraine. Thank you. Which yeah. is, and Ukraine and is, is like really putting up an inspiring fight. Yeah, it, that is totally inspiring. Yeah. I'm actually uh, out there raising a bunch of money for that as a volunteer. Awesome. Really awesome. I had the opportunity, as a side note, opportunity to go to Ukraine twice. And mm. it really is a, was a beautiful country filled with really yeah. amazing, caring people. Yeah. So it's heartbreaking and infuriating. Yeah. Um, so urgency. Urgency. Talk about urgency. Okay. So out of the 11 questions, I'd say this is number two or three. Well, I get to the, the, the one that's in competition. But in my experience, I worked, my first fundraising was working at Oxfam, the International Development Agency. And our greatest growth by far was during emergencies. So we went from something like 2 million to 15 million income in six weeks during the Ethiopia crisis of 1984. Uh, every time there was an emergency, people are motivated. The, the hundreds of millions of dollars have been donated to Ukraine and Amnesty International, which is one of our clients, uh, ha has raised so much money for Ukraine, they're not asking uh, for any more because they can't really do it. And Doctors Without Borders and other groups, Oxfam did the same thing during the tsunamis in Southeast Asia. So. Uh, people are motivated by urgency. It's in the media. It's always emotional stories, and the powerful ones are personally based stories. So, not every organization is going to have these crises, but there are other ways to convey emergency that work incredibly well. We've got a deadline uh, by Monday at midnight. We need to raise this amount of money. Uh, we've got a target, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. We're only seventeen thousand dollars short. If you can make another donation, we'll reach this target and be able to accomplish this. So using numbers and deadlines, and we have to get 500 volunteers out there cleaning up uh, this polluted river, uh, you know, because otherwise the plastic's going to get into the river and then end up in our, you know, like any numbers that you can kind of um, reach for does inspire people to get, I've been sucked into this many times personally, where I'll go in and make the second or third donation because I want to help them reach the target. But it works with a lot of new donors. And the goal, when you're getting new donors for any emergency, if the church roof falls in, in a big major church, you'll get a lot of people giving. But the goal is to keep them giving. And that's why monthly giving is a great thing to be promoting that when they are still feeling that. And um, you have to thank them right away because then they're more likely to become ongoing donors. But urgency is really, really important. So you have to figure out how can we inject this urgency? Matching gift is another example of urgency. We'll lose this matching gift unless we reach the target. Please help. Yeah. So. Beautiful. And again, just to say, I mean, you mentioned monthly giving and what I have seen, I mean, I, your book on how to create lifelong donors through monthly giving really is, in my opinion, the Bible or whatever religion du jour 
like your faith belief, like it is the go-to document on how to develop and scale a monthly giving program. So even if you have one that is either limping along or doing well, I feel like this book can take a good monthly giving program to a great monthly giving program. Uh, and well, thank you. Yes. And creating a sense of urgency. I mean, I did a test about two years ago and I became a monthly giver to 10 different programs. So about half of them were big national organizations or international organizations. And the other half were smaller community-based causes. And the ones that you could just tell had a really robust program when something would happen, a disaster. One of them was an animal humane society. So if there was like a big headline about like this in the city of Detroit, a big dog fighting ring was just busted. I would get another appeal that said, help. Uh, like, I know you, we know you're a monthly donor and we so appreciate your loyal support. We have this additional need. Would you consider because of this event, this again, tornado, flood, whatever, uh, would you consider making an additional one-time gift or increasing your monthly gift mm-hmm. to, you know, this higher amount? So I think that's also a way to leverage urgency. And, you know, again, I can't recommend this book enough. I'm holding the book up. Harvey can see me holding the book up. No one else can. But I obviously have all your books. Most of them are full of post-it notes and dog-eared. So urgency, number two or three in terms of importance. You heard it from the authority. (laughs) All right. So number eight, is it easy to give? Right. So this is a competitor for second place. If it's not easy, people don't give. So a story I tell in the book, which is true, is back in 1980, 81, I had no income to speak of, just got a, finally got a job out of university. And, uh, but I got a direct mail from Amnesty International. So I wrote them a $25 check and put it on my counter. They did not have a reply postage paid on it. So I had to go stand in line of the post office, buy a stamp, and then mail it. But it sat there for about three weeks because I was a busy guy and I didn't get to the post office. And after three weeks, I thought, you know what? I'm overdrawn in my bank account. I'll send them some money later on. Later on turned out to be almost 30 years because I you know, gave money to lots of other groups. And kind of, even though I've always really loved Amnesty, and as it turns out, We've been working for them now for 15 years. So I had did eventually start giving them money. But because they didn't uh, make it easy for me to give by putting that return stamp on, uh, I didn't give. I almost certainly would have been a monthly donor to them at the time. So they lost you know, Oxfam, who I'd been a monthly donor to for 42 years now, as I know, collected close to $20,000 so far, assuming if I live as long as my uh, as I should. <laughs> based on genetics and healthy lifestyle, uh, they'll get it probably another $20,000. And But Amnesty could have had exactly the same, but they didn't make it convenient. So I've been to events where they're collecting money. They don't have credit cards. People don't carry much cash. So they give, you know, a few years ago when people carried any cash, they give like the $20 in their pocket as opposed to writing the check for $250 or making the $500 credit card gift. So convenience is critically important. There's a kind of an arc that I think People go to, and I've been in events where by the time they got to me to collect my donation, I thought you get that highly emotional pitch 
I'm going to give like a thousand dollars. And then as they take seven minutes to get to you, I think, well, you know, maybe I'll give them 150 because, you know, this easy ease of giving is really important. Again, just back to monthly giving. You don't have to ask everybody to give every month if they're on an automatic credit card program. They just give, and even if they get bored with you or their interest change, people tend not to drop off these programs. We see 8% attrition for some of our clients. Yeah, I think I read that the average um, duration of a monthly giving, a monthly giver is like seven years, something like that. Yeah, but it can be higher. But part of the core thing is how people are recruited. So if it's a face-to-face person, they're not as loyal. Uh, if people are showing up for higher amounts than they can actually afford, they tend to drop off uh, sooner. But if they're uh, like a often a digital donor or mail donor or phoning the digital or mail donors, they stay on for a really long time. And uh, for some of our clients, it's definitely longer than that. Yeah, really good. Question number nine, how will I be treated? Mm-hmm. Well, the good thing is that if you treat your donors well, which means you know the impact report telling them how their money was spent, warm thank yous, you know, if appropriate and when appropriate, asking them for advice that shows you care about them. And because, you know, you've probably given them money to an organization where you have not been thanked. And I had one day, actually, I have to write this into a blog somewhere where I got three thank yous. One where I volunteered for this small organization to give them a bunch of advice. So I spent about an hour and a half on the phone with them. And about a week later, I got a thank you which is pretty easy, to, which is a one-liner. Dear Howard, thanks so much for <laughs> taking some time with us. And I burst out loud laughing because I thought this, that's pretty funny. Uh, and I didn't mind, but I'm thinking some people would really be offended by that. Like I thought that's hilarious. Um, I had given money, you know, I, like 500 bucks to an organization. And I got a letter. Thank, I got a letter literally in January. Thanks for your donation last March. We've been too busy to thank you kind of thing. And so there's another ridiculous one. But I'm an insider, and I find these things more funny or illuminating. But I know some donors are understandably really sensitive. People make a lot of gifts. I want to see how they're going to treat me. One of our hospital clients had somebody make a $10,000 donation. They had a great internal policy, which was whoever's in the office, the highest ranking person, on the staff, we'll call them immediately if there's a gift over X dollars. And so everybody was out for some conference. The person who was the database person, basically all day long inputting donation information, um, called because she followed the rules, which are great rules, and was a little nervous because she wasn't normally doing this. And the donor said, dear, well, thanks so much for your call. Uh, you're the first person who called me. I sent five $10,000 donations out, and I decided whoever thanked me first was going to get of securities. Wow. So this stuff, I know, it makes a difference. So, you know, treat your donors like you would want to be treated, probably even better if you can possibly do that. And organizations that do take time, uh, it makes a difference. We get, we give to a Shakespeare um, Bard on the Beach, brilliant uh, company here. We got sucked into giving them $1,000 for the benefactor status like 12 years ago. But I'm pretty sure that the personal hammer note, thanks, Harvey and Marcia, for your lovely gift. Christopher Gay's artistic director. 
Like it takes him 30 seconds to do this. I'm sure that's why we gave all through COVID because, you know, we've got that emotional connection because they know who we are and they care. And doing this for donors is the right thing in addition to the smart thing. Yes. And I have seen a trend emerging and I'm certainly recommending it with my clients now. And that is not just thanking and recognizing those gifts one at a time uh, at a certain dollar value and above, but looking at longevity. You know, even if someone's been giving modestly, but they've been doing that for 20 years, 25 years, even 10 years, that's really something. Chances are they have or would consider including you in their estate plans. I mean, there's just that longevity speaks volumes. And I think there's a real opportunity to treat them with a higher level of respect and 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 gratitude. For the clients who have good databases, which is not all of them, we do, in fact, try and recognize that. And uh, the really smart organizations are sending pins out to the people who have been giving 20 years or more, just as a small recognition. And because we do a lot of legacy uh, marketing, essentially, uh, lead generation through mail and digital stuff. Um, we look at all the different segments. So this is for hospitals, universities, really big files. And we can see that one of the greatest predictors of people saying, yes, I'm interested in leaving you money in my will, or even better, I've left you money in my will, then so they can really treat them well, is a longevity of giving. And it, the dollar amount doesn't matter. So that's, again, why monthly donors are one of your best segments for legacy giving because they tend to give for so many years. Yeah, beautiful. You know, one way, because I've been in organizations where they don't necessarily trust the database on how long, (laughs) it's not- With good reason. Yes, exactly. So one of the things that we've done uh, is when we do like a fall thing-a-thon and we're fortunate enough to get someone live on the phone, we'll say something like, uh, you know, our records show you've been giving for 15 years. Is that right? And then they'll say, oh, no, it's actually more like 20. And it's like, oh, well, we were all paper systems 20 years ago or something. But you can kind of get the donor's perspective on how long they've been giving. Yeah. And that then becomes like the benchmark from which we start counting forward. Yeah, yeah. great tip. And even if they're wrong. <laughs> yes, they're right in their mind. <laughs> they're right in their mind. And that's what you have to respect. And, you know. That's why I like in when you're going back to donors who haven't given for a while is to remind them your last gift in March of 2020 was a fabulous help to our community and dealing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, because mo- I think most people, especially as you age, cannot remember time. It, like it doesn't work like it used to when you're younger. And so remind, oh, it's been two years since I gave. I better give again. Yeah, beautiful. Number 10, will I have say over how my gift is used? So uh, let me start this by saying not every question is uh, appropriate for every donor. I'm just saying these are the 11. So some of them could care less about this, but other people really care. And so essentially this is earmarking uh, in a way. So I have a different attitude towards lots of people in the field. Everybody hates earmarking pretty much like CEOs hate earmarking for sure. Uh, financial directors really hate earmarking. And my feeling is if this is what donors want, that's how you build a relationship with them. They get to trust you by feeling, okay, their money's going exactly to help these kids in this area. Long as it doesn't um, 
know, change your priorities or your mission, but it's the kind of thing you want to be doing anyway. I say, if you take that money, you're going to accomplish something that is good in your community. And then you build a relationship with them. So then down the road, they may give you core funding. They may invest in a program that gets more donors. So we've seen, we had a, a group, uh, we made a presentation to probably seven years ago now. They had 17 donors, national organization. Crazy that they had 17 donors. And so my colleague, Lynn Boardman, great fundraiser, yes, made this presentation. If they invested in you know digital and mail to build an annual and monthly giving, an annual giving program, it would really work. And so they went around and collected $150,000 from the board members because it was earmarked to invest in growing the program. Now they're making millions a year. They've got 18,000 donors, you know, well over a thousand monthly donors have already received millions in legacies over a seven year period and uh, earmarked money. And you know they weren't giving it for other things. So again, you know there are problems with a lot of organizations where if you know the Koch brothers want to come in and change your environmental organization to pro oil stuff, then that's not a good thing. But as long as it fits with your values, and then you have the opportunity to talk it through with somebody. So I tell some stories and how Daryl Upsell, a great fundraiser in Europe, um, when Freddie Mercury died and they were going to give uh, all his money from Queen's re-release of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody to um, AIDS beds, but that's not actually what they needed. So with the series of meetings and conversations, he managed to get them to change that to invest in education. So again, donors want to make a difference. And if you can show them how earmarking of this doesn't help, then you can often change them. But I'd say the the big weakness in the field is not taking earmark money that still matches with your mission to help build a long-term relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, you may have read the article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy um, last month where there was a university who accepted a multi-million dollar gift from a donor to build a new housing, a new dorm. Uh, but the donor said, but I want to design it. And they were not an architect. And so they accepted the money and they got the renderings. And it was like, an, I don't know, like a thousand person, thousand room dorm with no windows. So I had not read that, but yes. So I, we have to be conscious and careful. But again, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is say, I'm not going to accept your money. And that's okay. And I have. Um, you know, there's lots of good stories about fundraisers that have done that. And then the donor comes back and said, you know what? I appreciate your integrity, not taking my money. I now trust you and I'm going to give you money for this. Yeah. Yeah. So the dialogue, that conversation, and to your point that you've made throughout our conversation today, when trust is high, restrictions tend to be lower. So we have to earn that trust. Yeah. All right. The 11th question. How will you measure results? Right. So I think there's two ways to measure. So the John Wood example for Room to Read, I gave excellent. So they can measure results. We have built you know, 180 schools in Nepal. We've given 2,732 uh, scholarships for girls. The specificity of this gives legitimacy. If you said 2,500, not as good as 2,573 because it feels more real. So that's one measurement that we 
people have a tendency to round things off. I try and never round things off because it undercuts the legitimacy. Um, so there's two ways to measure that raw numbers like that, but also telling stories. That's as you were talking, as we were talking about for impact reports. Um, that is measuring things. We help this girl who grew up in horrible circumstances to get to university and now she's going to become a doctor and she's going back to her community to help other people. So that's a really strong measurement and again, critically important. Very good. 11 really powerful questions that every donor asks and crave the answers to. I love it. So thank you, Harvey. Um, at the thank end you, of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire, insightful questions to provide a little more value even to our, or to our listeners. So are you ready? Sure. Okay. So first question, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Ask for advice, then ask for money. Awesome. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? And it's okay if it's your book. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I do recommend my books, but I also give all the royalties away to charity. So I feel like I can not try to sell them. But, but I think I was going to say made to stick, I think, from the Heath brothers, because I think it's the kind of thing that it's so well written, so storytelling based and also based on research that I think it would be really useful. But on the Sophie website, uh, and Ken may have talked about this in your recent conversation, Showcase of Fundraising Innovation and Ideas. S-O-F-I-I. There's a list of, uh, Lisa Sargent, I think, did the top 40 books to read um, of all time for fundraisers. And it's got a nice mix of fundraising books, but books on psychology and marketing like Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Unbelievably great book. Uh, and then some of the classics in fundraising, I think Kay Sprinkle Grace and Ken Burnett, Tom O'Hearn, et cetera. So, yeah. and my books. Awesome. That's why I'm mentioning. Yes, of course. Um, number three, what are your top three? What are the top three characteristics needed to be a successful fundraiser? Well, I'd say the first thing is passion because the people who I know who are the best fundraisers are incredibly dedicated to the causes they're working for. And even when they become consultants, as many of them do, they bring that passion to the other causes. You have, to, if you feel like, you know, you can connect with cause and care about a lot of things. That's a real gift because um, that attracts money. Integrity, absolutely critical because if you betray somebody's trust, like you're dead to them for a long time. Um, and then I think a desire for knowledge. So the people I know who are really good are studying all the time. They're like you and I know lots. I'm constantly picking up new books, trying to get new ideas, going to webinars, et cetera. And I know a lot of these things, but I learn something every time. Uh, it reminds me of some things I've forgotten. And sometimes I just get new ideas that are not actually what they're saying, but it makes me think of something else. And so I think the self-education for fundraisers should be a top priority because people have, there's a lot of people who spent, you know, thousands of hours creating these books that only take you three hours to read and you can glean so much knowledge and know so much about testing and make decisions because of other people who've gone ahead of you doing testing on things. Absolutely. So, Harvey, what's your favorite fundraising tool or application? Well, I thought it was, that's a, um, 
I think it's probably direct mail because I came into the profession where that was the the thing that really built programs. We do a lot of digital and other things, but we found that mail still makes more money than digital. You tend to access um, people who, when they convert to monthly giving, stay forever because of who they are. But also, we've, we've got like a, a food bank client where we've, you know, they make a million bucks a year from the digital in a small community. But 80% of it comes from the direct mail donors who get the letter, then go online to make a donation. And obviously, that's increasing a lot. And we're promoting that because, again, ease of giving. You don't have to go get that stamp or even go to the corner. Or, you know, when COVID's rampant, some people were staying inside. So going to the computer made totally sense. So, but I still love it. It's the, co- the combination of the testing and the copywriting and the numbers and walking into an office and seeing bags of mail and knowing there's money in every one of them. I still find it exciting. Mm-hmm. It, that never gets old. No. <laughs> At the risk of getting you in hot water, what's your favorite fundraising conference and why? Well, I think... Um, it's probably the International Fundraising Conference that happens in Europe. I've not been for a few years and nobody has been. Partly because there's people from all over the world. So you're meeting people from Africa, Latin America, Asia, and a lot of your super smart Europeans who have become friends. But I've developed friends over there. And we have similar values, similar interests, and it's a really exciting environment. And the best part of it is you're stuck in the same place with nothing around but tulips miles uh where you have to kind of hang out with people morning noon and night so it's a real intensive um place and and they curate very well i think that's the thing a lot of the other conferences which are kind enough to have me speak they tend to not necessarily get people who've got uh tons of experience and they're the people you know you're likely going to mostly learn from obviously you need to bring new people in but so they tend to have that curation and the western Canada fundraising conference is also kind of similar. They basically go for super senior experienced people, which is why they're having you keynoted. Thank um, you. Uh, this year. But uh, it's a really fun, intimate conference as well. It happens in Western Canada, moves around from cities, but I'm very fond of that too. Yes. And that's coming up in early Not as June. far as Europe. Not as yeah. much closer than Europe. Yeah. All right. Last question, Harvey. Knowing what you do now about fundraising and the nonprofit sector, what advice would you give your younger self who's just starting out in the profession? Mm-hmm. Um, well, probably uh, I could think of many things, <laughs> but I'll say lead a more balanced life. I, I, I was like the 100-hour-a-week person, which like wasn't great for me or my relationship at the time. And I was just too young and naive and just passionate. So it's finding that fine balance. I think that would probably be the most, you know, be careful who you work with, because I think in um, every area of the world, there are people who are unhealthy or potentially even toxic. And that can be really bad for you. So if you find yourself in, I mean, that may be one of the reasons why people are moving so quickly in the fundraising profession. But I think my tolerance for, you know, people are victims of racism or sexism or all these other things. Uh, I don't think people should tolerate it. And, um, and 30, 40 years ago, people were more tolerant than they are now. And I think the minimizing acceptability of that is a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, Harvey, what are you up to next? Hmm. Well, uh, I've got three other book projects. Um, one of them pretty close to being done. And, um, but you know, I like, I love what I do. So I plan to keep working and I've got, I've got just a great team to work with and great clients. So I will continue to do this until I drop. <laughs> <laughs> I feel more concerts. I like, I, I'm, I can't wait for, I, I don't think COVID is going to possibly be ever over in my lifetime, but one of my passions is the arts and theater and comedy and music and everything. And I'm really hoping to get back into that. Yeah, absolutely. We all look forward to that. Well, Harvey, thank you. As always, you delight, you inspire. Yeah, our pleasure to have you. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Until next time, keep on transforming your fundraising and transforming the world. Bye for now. We're back for a final word about Tammy Zonker's training style and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's growth member Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee. Tammy is so encouraging. She's very empowering. She really wants you to succeed in your role. And that really comes through with everything that she does, from the monthly coaching calls to the monthly webinars. The guidance I've received from Tammy and other members of the Fundraising Transformers group has always been so constructive, so beneficial. And you can tell everyone in the group wants everybody else to succeed because we all know what a challenging job it can be to fundraise for our our wonderful causes and our organizations. You may be asking yourself, can a growth membership really help me improve my fundraising results? Is it worth my time? Laurel Grow from Phoenix Family in Kansas City shared that her organization increased charitable dollars raised by 132% since joining as a growth member. Becky Shambliss from Awake in Anchorage, Alaska shared that her organization increased donor retention from 13% to 69% in about a year using what they learned from Tammy's training. And growth member Amanda Johnson from Multiplying Good in Indianapolis shared that her organization exceeded their annual fundraising goal by 104% and grew overall giving by 13% in one year by applying lessons learned from Tammy as a member of her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's member Stevie Schumate again sharing how she and you can grow your fundraising skills as a growth member of Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community. This is the first fundraising role that I have ever been in before. Um, so at 30 years old, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, well, how do I rocket launch my fundraising expertise? You learn from Tammy Zonker. That's what you do. Become a member of the Fundraising Transformers community. To join our live monthly training and Ask Me Anything sessions and get access to our growing library of on-demand training videos and tools and share lessons learned with other fundraising pros like you in our private and safe online community, visit fundraisingtransform.com growth, click join, and get started today. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag, The Intentional Fundraiser, and tag me, 
Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community, where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night, where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations, create a results-driven, donor-centric development plan, strengthen donor relationships, improve your donor retention rates, and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program, and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.